0: Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. John chapter 9, verse 1 tells us this. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. And then he said, I love this, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. I love that. It's like the artist formerly known as blind there. All right, verse 13. Now, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Then they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. That he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received the sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. You know, we were there. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed that already, agreed already that if anyone confessed that, Jesus, that he was the Christ, that they would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. There's a whole sermon in that, right? Verse 24, so, they called, uh, so again, they called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears them. Since the world began, it has been unheard of anyone opening the eyes of someone who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then they answered and said to him, you were, com- you were completely born in your sins and you're teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, don't you just love that Jesus goes after the outcast? So Jesus goes after him. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, look how beautiful this this is. You have both seen him. And it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see, you can almost put that in quotes, may be made blind. Then some Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say, We see, therefore, your sin remains. This is the word of God for the people of God to which we say, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you for this time together today to do what we just did, to do what we're doing This is so needed, God. This opportunity to stop, to sit, to be in your presence, tuned in to your word. So we declare together that that's why we're here. And Jesus, um, I know that I need to desperately surrender to that. And so I do that right now. I just give you all my efforts. I give you all my plans. I give you all my ideas. And I ask that Jesus, you would accomplish the work that you intend to do today. You'd give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying, and, and give us eyes to see. Open our eyes to see who you are in a fresh way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> 41 verses. <clears throat> Certainly quite the, the content, quite the narrative, but what an incredible event in the life of Jesus. It's been said, if you're a new Christian and um, you're just kind of approaching the Bible for the first time, probably the best place to start is the Gospel of John. And, and I think the reason is because when you get into the Gospel of John, you get to experience things like what we just read. And, and what is that? That is an incredible vision, no pun intended, but an incredible vision of Jesus. Jesus. That's what John gives us, this incredible vision of Jesus. And certainly that's what we have here in John 9. All throughout the Gospels and all throughout John's Gospel especially, you have all these different snapshots and pictures. It's almost like if, if John had an Instagram feed. You know, it's like you could tap on each photo and get a different picture of who Jesus is. Now when you tap on John chapter 9 and that picture um, it gets maximized, here's what we have here. We have a Jesus who, understand it this way, who specializes in the vision-giving, eye-opening, sight-supplying business. The vision-giving, eye-opening, sight-supplying business. Now, this is a characteristic and a common ministry of God in general. You read all throughout the Bible, you see God opening people's eyes to see what they would not be able to see without his intervention, you have cases in the Old Testament of God opening Gehazi, Elijah's servant, to see the army of angels that's surrounding them in defense to the army that's coming against him. Case after case, God opening eyes to see what they were initially blind to, and then certainly God in the person of Jesus. Everywhere he's going, in some way or another, he is giving vision. He's opening eyes. He's supplying sight. This was even the messianic mission described in Isaiah, that this Messiah, he would come and he would open the eyes of the blind. That's what Jesus proclaimed about himself. I'm here to give sight. I'm here to give vision. And we certainly see it here in John chapter 9. We see this incredible story of this outcast who was brought into a relationship with God through Jesus, experiencing, listen, the same miracle that you and I have experienced in salvation. It's the miracle of sight, the ability to see. And let's point out the fact, too, uh, that miracle we've experienced, um, it doesn't have a full explanation. We, we, we don't understand it all. We, we, don't, we haven't figured it all out. Like we, we haven't been able to put Jesus in the box that we completely make sense of yet. But like this man, can we not say, here's what happened in my life, man. I once saw one way, and now I see completely differently. I once was blind, but now I see. It was C.S. Lewis who said so beautifully that I believe in God like I believe in the sun. Not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. I believe in God like I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but through it I have vision to see everything else. That's what Jesus specializes in, the vision giving, the eye opening sight, supplying Business, this is our testimony, and notice here in this text, it wasn't just physical blindness that Jesus came to illuminate, right? The physical blindness that Jesus miraculously heals here served as a picture to a greater blindness, and it was a spiritual blindness that the religious leaders didn't even have the sight to see. They were so blind, they couldn't even see they were blind. It's what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe, listen to this, Let the light, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, he goes on to say this, that it is God who commanded light, the same God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It was Charles Spurgeon who said that we cannot give men eyes, but we can give them light. We can give them light as those who have seen what we didn't see without Jesus. Now, uh, this verse, Spurgeon, and also in this text, it's speaking again to the spiritual blindness that Jesus comes to illuminate. And I just love this picture. Um, I love all the different aspects of of God's work in our life and transformation. I I love the different ways that the scriptures describe how God changes us and makes our life better (laughs) for his glory. And and what a great way to describe it. One of the ways he does this is through, again, opening our eyes. Um, This is, of course, true of salvation. We come to see Jesus clearly. Uh, There's also this great hope. I love what Russ taught on last Sunday, looking at 1 Corinthians 13, which says, you know, right now, even with our vision of Jesus, we see in a mirror kind of dimly, kind of, it's kind of fuzzy, but one day we're going to see face-to-face. It's going to be completely clear. Now also in the meantime, I love this scripture here in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus, and he's prayed specifically for this specialized ministry of Jesus to happen in their life. He goes, I know you're a community of faith, hope, and love. I know you're walking with Jesus. I know that you are seeking to worship him and follow him and honor him. But one of the things that he prays for this church is that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. Did you ever have to pray that before? Like, God, give me some insight. God, help me see what you see, but I can't see. But through you, I'll have the vision. Uh, That's what Paul prays for this church. And, you know, uh, there's a reason behind why we're talking about this big idea. Um, Reading this story here in the Gospel of John, understanding Jesus as a vision-giving, eye-opening, sight-supplying miracle worker is so valuable because how many of us know how important it is for us as a community to have vision, for things to be clear, to, to know where we're going. We are in desperate need of praying this. This is actually what we have been praying as a church over the past few months. Some of the leadership here, we've been praying this God, would you open our eyes? This is not our church, this is your church. So, being that this is your church, would you enlighten our eyes, do the sight supplying, miracle giving thing that you do for us to see what you see so that we can know where we as a community are called to go? It's so important. It's so important to ask this question and not as the church just assume we know what we're supposed to do. It says in Proverbs 29:18 that where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Speaking about the people of God. Another translation says that when there is no vision, the people run wild. I love that. They go buck wild. When there's no vision, vision has the ability to restrain, but not in a limiting, restrictive manner, but in a liberating manner. Like when you have a vision for your life, you're restrained, not that you're kept from things— that you know, are valuable to you, but you're able to zero in and prioritize your life around what really matters. Does that make sense? Like when you know what you're called to do and who you're called to be, there's a certain healthy restraint to that that actually empowers you. Like a fish in the ocean is not restricted there in the ocean, right? It's actually free to be a fish, okay? People are like, you know, Christianity is so restrictive. No, it's the place we get actual life in oxygen, right? Or like a train on train tracks, so restrictive, you know, so exclusive. Why can't the train go on I ninety five? You know, it's like, come on. But this is how the gospel leads us into a vision-filled, restrained life that's focused for the glory of Jesus, so we don't waste our short time here on earth. Doing, the goal is that we're doing the very thing that we're here to do, fulfilling the very purpose that God has given us. And so that is where we have been led um, as a church, especially in this season, going, Lord, We need vision. We need vision. Um, And what's really cool is that, and I just want to encourage us with this, um, God wants to open your eyes more than you yourself want to see. I wonder if you know a God like that. Or do you know a God who's always hiding from you? at hiding things and he's kind of like you know two steps ahead and he's always kind of this mystery that you just can't seem to 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 look at and it's kind of like the elusive bigfoot like where he's out there right that kind of idea of like is he real can i really see him does he really exist does he really want to reveal himself to me the scriptures reveal a god who wants to reveal himself more than we want to see him the scriptures show us a god who wants us to see more than we do And that's what's really cool about God, and we feel like the Lord has met us in that, as we have desired to experience some vision from him. Um, What's really cool to say is that we believe he's given it to us. Uh, On your way in, you got one of our vision guides, and these vision guides that uh, we handed out, they lay out what is some updated, what we would say uh, enlightened vision uh, that we believe God has given us. Now, maybe you're wondering, Andrew, what is the difference between this thing I got on the way in and this book that I got two years ago at Vision Night. Raise your hand if you were at the Hyatt place for Vision Night a couple years ago. So a few years ago, um, as we set out to follow Jesus and planting his church here, um, we had a Vision Night where, kind of like a Vision Sunday, we got together. And not just for, for those that were going to be a part of the church, but people who were interested or even just people who were in the community that wanted to know more about Solace or just friends and family and other churches came to support. And we communicate, in this is our vision for the kind of church that we want to plant. Um, and that's what you would find in this book. Now, over time, what we believe is that God is... Has given us some clarity. Um, The difference between this and this, you'll even notice it. It's not that like we've changed our vision and mission. We just believe that Jesus has given us some clarity to it. He's 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 refined some things. He's brought some things into focus. And uh, in a lot of ways, this uh, previous language we had, some of our like what what we're after, what we're doing, how we're doing it, some of it has stayed with. But some of this language too is very like pre-church plant. So it's kind of like by faith, like, oh, I guess this is what a church is going to be like, you know? And then the church shows up. Hey, guys. And, and things start to flesh out, and you start to meet people. You start to hear God's stories. You, we start to, as a community together, start to go, Lord, what are you doing? And uh, as we've kind of brought that to the Lord, he's met us. And so I want to walk us through some of our new statements today. And I do believe God is going to speak to you. Uh, through some of these things. The first thing I want to begin with is simply, it's Vision Sunday, so it would be appropriate to start with vision. Our vision. Um, I'll read each one and then I'll kind of take a step back and uh, walk through it. Uh, You see there uh, in your bulletin the way that we're communicating our vision is our vision as a church is to be a Christ-centered community that makes an an eternal impact on the world around us. And I'm going to come back to this, a Christ-centered community that makes an eternal impact on the world around us. Now, when it comes to vision, when it comes to vision, the question that vision is seeking to answer or ask and answer is the question of why do we exist? Why do we exist? Like why are we here? You woke up today and instead of sleeping in, you came to a middle school on a Sunday okay you you were singing some songs at like 10 45 a.m with other people in a room usually people do that at nighttime at concerts but you did it on an early Sunday morning right you, you're going to gather at a coffee shop if you're new here later at 2 p.m uh, this next season we're going to be hanging out in homes intentionally doing some things why are we doing this right such a, an important question that's sadly rarely asked Rarely ask why are we doing this? The, the question of vision, again, is why do we exist? Or to what end or for what ultimate purpose do we exist as a community of Jesus followers? And here's also something I've noticed. This question, why we exist, it's rooted in another one. Why we exist is rooted in another question, and that's the question, who are we? Who are we? Whether or not you examine the root of your purpose doesn't deny the fact that there is a root to your purpose. There is a theological basis that informs everything that you do and everything you believe about your life and what you're supposed to do. And let me say, same with the church. Same with the church. In the church today, we might not talk about it as much, but there are theological assumptions about who we are as the church that affects why we exist. Does that make sense? The big idea here is this idea that, that our understanding of our identity who we are, will always inform, our identity will always inform the content of our activity. Your identity informs your activity and even your destiny. Uh, So so what you are about right now, the life that you're building, the life that you're you're living, the life that you're leading, whether you realize it or not, is directly connected to who you think you are. Who you think you are right now. Who, Who are you? Now, the truth of that informs what you do. It informs what you're about, and certainly when it comes to the church. So when it comes, again, to vision, here's the question. Who are we, okay? Who are we, and why do we exist? Um, and I want to say that this is not a question that we ask ourselves. We consult each other about. What do you think? What do you what do you think the what do you think the church is? What, what would you like? What are your preferences? Right? How would you like the worship to sound? Right? Okay. Well, who are we? Why do we exist? What What, what do you think your this? By the way, this is not a question that we ask ourselves. And sadly, that's what's what, what's I think wrong with a lot of vision um, today or lack of vision in the church. Is it comes from asking this question to the right person. And there's only one person that has the right and the authority to answer the question, who is the church and why do they exist? And guess what? They're in this room, but they're not in this room, if you know what I'm saying. That's the person of Jesus. He said this in Matthew 16. He said, I will build, whose church? My church. It's his church. It's Jesus' church. I heard it said one time, um, Francis Chan said it this way. Uh, when, when someone comes, he said, if someone comes to you and they say, you know, I didn't really like the worship today. He says, here's how you reply. Well, that's a good thing because we weren't worshiping you. I didn't, like the, I didn't like the worship today. didn't like it. I didn't like the worship. Well, good. It wasn't for you. It was for Jesus. Because this is Jesus' church. We as a community, whether or not we have a building or a space, we are Jesus' church. And it's his church. I will build my church. Now, uh, so we we go to Jesus to to ask and answer this question, who we are and why we exist, in order to develop our vision. Um, And, you know, I wish I could get into a whole study of who the church is. In fact, we did. (laughs) This past summer, we studied ecclesiology. You can look it up on our podcast. We go into depth as to who the church is uh, historically as a global people and all that stuff. Uh, let me give you uh, three words that I think theologically would be for our, us as a church. Here's our foundation as we consult God and his word about what Jesus' church is, who they are. Here's what we see in scripture. Three words that define the people of God. We are three, three things. We are number one, a saved people. Number two, a centered people. And thirdly, a sent people. This is true about who we are, whether or not we function in it, right? We are a saved people, a centered people, and a sent people. Let me expound on this a little bit more. We are a people who have been first saved. Let me stop for a second. Hold on. We are people who have been saved by Jesus. Just process that for a second. That is too eternal to brush by. We are a community of people who have been saved by Jesus. We glorify you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us, Lord. David prays in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation, Lord. Don't we need some of that? Sometimes we can be like, too used to being saved. <laughs> and the greatest place to draw the joy of your salvation is to go back to that cross where we see all that Jesus did, which says to me, I don't got to do a thing. I am forgiven, I am saved. My course has changed. I am in the palm of his hand because of Jesus. And listen, that is who the, the church is in truth. We, we talked about this of the ecclesiology that there is a, what's called the true or the false church, or another way to say it is the, the visible and the invisible church. Um, though we are right now visible at, as the church, there is the church that we see and there there is the church that Jesus sees. The church that we see is everybody who has come to church. The church that Jesus sees is everyone that Jesus knows is going to heaven, and that's not always the same thing. It, it, you know, I used to say it in youth group all the time, but it's, you know, it's timeless. Um, that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Right? Unless you're like Optimus Prime or something. I mean, okay. It would have been awesome if someone said, I am Optimus Prime. That would have been awesome, I'm just going to say, but... The true church of Jesus Christ, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus and have been saved by him. The church is also a people who have been centered on Jesus. And this is what we see God doing all throughout history. We see this with the nation of Israel. He saves them, them coming out of Egypt as a picture of our salvation, being called out, set apart, rescued from the world, rescued into God's embrace. But he doesn't just save them to go, I'm a saved person, I'm going to go on with my life now. That's not the evidence of true salvation. What he does is he saves people in order to form a people for himself. So he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. He orients their lives as a community so that they would be now a people as a light to the nations around them who are centered on this God who has saved them. A, a centered people. So even the nation of Israel, they would orient their, their tents and their, and their living spaces and their tribes would orient in a circle around the tabernacle of meaning where God's presence would reside. You see the picture? centered around Jesus. Man, this is historical. It's also prophetic. When you get to the book of Revelation, you see this incredible vision of all languages, all nations, all cultures, all people. The one thing they have in common, they've been saved by Jesus. And they are together oriented around the very throne of Jesus. He's at their center. They're centered on Jesus. It's so cool because in the end of Revelation, it talks about how in the new heavens and new earth, there won't even be a sun anymore. Because Jesus, the Lamb, is going to be the light of the new heavens and the new earth? Come on. I'd say it's pretty bright. Not a bulb. You're going to have to go to Home Depot to replace anytime soon, right? Jesus is the light. But there's an incredible picture there. Think about it. The sun is the very thing that we as the earth revolve around. But in heaven, Jesus is going to be the one we revolve around. He's at the center. And so guess what? We as the church, we exist right now in the present time, ready, as a historic continuation of God's people, right? And we also exist as a prophetic foretaste of what's to come. Right now, as we are, as a saved people, the church is a saved but also a centered people who orient their lives together, not around ourselves, but around Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That would it, that's what it means to be the church. So we come here every Sunday not to be at the center of the worship, but for Jesus to be at the center of the worship. We start with worship, not pragmatically, but theologically, because we're here for Jesus. So we start by singing to Him before anything. It's about you. And then we gather around the Word, not because a person's gifted enough to make us happy and smile and sit through a 50 minute sermon. But we gather around the word of Jesus because this is the thing that's going to endure forever and this is the voice that Jesus wants to speak to us and we're listening to voices all day long but our lives need to be centered around his voice. His voice. So, so we study God's word. We worship. We, we pray and we say, God, come work in our lives. We, we want to be centered on your worth. That's worship. We, we want to be centered on your word and we want to be centered on your work. Your work. How many of us, we come into usually Sunday, I don't know about you, but you're starting to think about your work week. Your work week. You have no fuel for your work week if you don't expect and experience first God's work in your life. And so that's what we do. God, bring your work. We're centered people. And let me tell you something. When we exist, when we function this way, as a saved and centered people, we're effective as a sent people. As a sent people, okay, because we are a sent people, you have been sent whether or not you are going. We as the church have been sent whether or not we are going. We are not just here for holy rah-rah kumbaya. We are, but not just. It's all, it's all good to have a little holy rah-rah kumbaya. okay. But the gathering of God's people consistent with all throughout scripture is for the ultimate purpose of being filled up so that the church can go out and, and pour out. Okay, so we want to make sure we use, like, intentional language with that. So, like, when church is over, church, service, we say things like church service, which is what we're doing right now. We call this time together a gathering. This is a gathering of the church. And guess what? When we leave and we are scattering, we are still the church. And church has ended, but the church actually just left. The church has left the building, right? I mean, that's what's happening. We're we're, we're the church going. We don't go to church. We're the church going, we're a sent people. This is consistent with Jesus. He brings us in, centers our lives to send us out. So we exist 24-7, by the way, in this way. And I know I'm talking a lot about like here and the spaces, but you know, even right now, as we have this service, we're, we're, we're a sent people. You know, So you, you bring your friends here on Sunday morning. You bring your family members, and we're a sent people here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to them. So we exist as a saved community, a centered community, and a scent community, and our witness is really tied up in the centered part. Um, there is nothing more countercultural, not just in SoFlo, but certainly Boca Raton. There's nothing more countercultural than not being self centered. There's nothing more illuminating. It's amazing how many people we could lead to Christ if we truly chose to be a Christ centered people. If we put ourselves second, I mean, that's characteristic of Boca. Boca is the place to go get to know some self-centered people. And it's not always self-centered, like you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, all right? But sometimes self-centered looks like this, me first. Me first. You go to the stop sign, they they go first. Okay, you're going to go, I'll let you go because you were going to go, okay? All right. I know the, the whole intersection is backed off, but just go ahead and go into the middle of it. Now my light's green. But you first, sit there, and I'll sit through my light now. You should have waited there. It's okay. You first, right? Like, this is the nature of, of the community that we're in. Um, and so we're called to be the save-centered and sent people. Now, this, again, this theological identity, this informs our vision. When we understand that this is who we are, we're, we are free to pursue what Jesus called us to be, and that is to be a Christ. This is what we're after, guys. We want to be a Christ centered community that makes an eternal impact on the world around us. And notice that this is twofold here. As a saved people, there's an internal vision for us that we as a people would be those that are oriented around Jesus. A community of individuals oriented around Jesus. But it's got to be more than internal, it's got to be external as well. If all we ever do is get together, but nothing around us changes, like think about your neighbors, your coworkers, think about the people around us in this community, things need to be different. You know, it's been said like the greatest evidence of a, the effect of a, on a church is like if we were to close down, who would miss us? That's not here. Th- that's the idea we're after. There's this internal, and then there's this external that we would make an eternal impact on the world around us. Now, when we talk about vision. Here's the thing that we're talking about. We're talking about a desired, through the gospel and the power of the spirit, we're talking about a destination that with man, it's impossible. It is impossible with us, in and of ourselves, to be a Christ-centered community. Somebody say amen. It's just impossible. It's not default. It It is impossible with man to make an eternal impact on this world around us. Say amen. But it is possible with God. We're talking about a destination that is possible with God. I think that's the best way to think about it, okay when we talk about a vision, there's so many different ways to use vision, mission language um, depends what church you go to like sometimes I'm like, I feel like the vision should be your mission and your value should be your vision and I don't know, okay, but you get the idea you can have a vision for your mission you know you can have a you I have a real good vision for our values it's like is that your vision? No? Yes? Okay, so this stuff can get kind of confusing, so let me try to simplify this a little bit. When we talk about this vision to be a Christ-centered community that makes an eternal impact on the world around us as a local church here, we're we're talking about a desired destination. This is where we want to go. You with me? Simple. Now, how many of us know this, that every destination requires uh, transportation? No? Uber? Anyone? Good? Okay. Um, Every destination requires adequate transportation, whatever that may be for you. Um, If it's like me, it's your sister-in-law's car from high school, that works, okay? Whatever it takes, all right? But it's getting from point A to point B. You need transportation to arrive at the destination. Now, the vehicle that takes us to the destination of our vision, that's what would be called your mission. Your mission is the vehicle. This is the thing that we as a community are setting our minds on right here in the present. There's the vision the destination, but here in the present, here is what we are doing. Here is the vehicle that's going to take us in that direction with God, all things are possible. And you see it there in your books. The mission language we have is this idea. Our mission, the vehicle that we have as a church, is to center our lives around following Jesus together. Our mission to center our lives around following Jesus together. So, now, a big part here, of course, is going to be the following Jesus part. We'll talk about that. But it's the center part. Because for a lot of us, this is going to require some repentance. This requires some uh, life alterations and adjustments. Because for, for a lot of us, it's not that we don't follow Jesus. It's just that it's not at the center of our lives. It's kind of like, um, rather than it being the drawer that every, or, or the dresser that every drawer fits into, it's just kind of like a drawer in my life. The dresser's my life. And so this is a call to center our lives as a saved people around following our Savior. Um, and this comes with the conviction that salvation and discipleship are not two mutually exclusive things. But they are a means to each other. Um, You know, today you have this idea, like you hear a lot in the church where I've I've heard this before. It's like, you know, um, I made a disciple. I made one. Like Marianne made these soulless cookies, okay? I made a disciple. Here it is, right? Like it's something that became a thing after a long period of time. Have you heard this idea? Um, Or you've heard, like, man, the problem with you right now is you're just a believer you've got to be a disciple. You're not a disciple yet, all right? One day, and then if you do the disciple thing well, what do you get to do? You get to be a discipler, Ooh, which is not an English word, by the way, um, or in the Bible, but a discipler. And then maybe one day a pastor, maybe a saint, who knows? Who knows? Okay, we'll see. See how far you get, all right? And it's just like we create this spiritual corporate ladder that doesn't exist, Jesus knows nothing of someone who's saved who's not a disciple. Discipleship to Jesus is not optional. It's not an elective. It's what it means to be born again. It's what it means to be saved. To be saved is not just Jesus gave up his life for me, but it's the pearl of great price. Paul says, I've counted all things lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And so him saving me doesn't just mean like, hey, thanks, I'm in the door. But Jesus saves us to call us to himself. That's what he does. He calls us to himself. This is discipleship. And this was Jesus' vision for the church. Remember when he's commissioning his disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is really cool. Make disciples. He, he says that there. But it doesn't come through this long process. It comes through something called baptism, conversion. Make disciples how? Baptizing them and teaching them. You're a disciple now. You've been born again, and now you're following Jesus. Look at the vision. Teaching them, those who have been baptized, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if Jesus promises to be like exceptionally and especially close to us and with us in doing something, shouldn't we be about that? Like if Jesus is like, I'm gonna be with you in this, we should be like, well, let's go do that thing, right? Jesus is gonna be all over that. And Here's what Jesus said, that, that's, that's what you're called to do. I'm gonna be with you in that. First, it's reach, we gotta reach people. And I love he, he describes baptism. Baptism, this, this high priority of my public identification with my salvation and my public association with the church of Jesus. It's a priority. Have you been baptized? We, we would love to be a part of that in your life, to see you be baptized. That's conversion. But he doesn't say, go therefore and make converts of all the nations. Go into all the world and lead them to pray this prayer. And then pat yourselves on the back, get on the plane, and leave. No, and there's been it's been really cool to see even today, like in the in the missions world, so much missionary uh, international mission strategy has been reoriented around not just going into these communities to do, the, but but let's strengthen the churches there. Because every listen, any work of evangelism that doesn't lead someone into a community of discipleship is a work in futility. It, Jesus talked about the, talked about the the, the, the the seed that's sown on stony ground. How many of us know people like that? They did this, they went for that. But listen, the evidence of that salvation. Now, what I've seen too, and Tim Keller talks about this a lot in some of his language with church planning, is in a lot of cases what you have happening is some people, it's not that they're converted, then they're in community, but some people just come, they're in community, gospel-centered preaching and teaching and community, and it's like they're converted over time. I feel like that's my testimony. anybody kind of like that? You're like, I don't know the day that like I went from darkness. I, when were you saved? Like, I guess before the foundations of the earth. I don't really know. I'm a Calvinist, you know. Like, you don't really figure. You kind of like you're kind of confused. You're like, I, I just know that the gospel saved me. That's all I know, right? Once was blind, now I see. And it often happens in these in these contexts. So teaching them to observe. Now the hard part of this too, right, is the call is to observe all that I've commanded you. The word observe there is the word obey. Like right now, you're like, we're observing all that he's commanded. Well, we're observing it to observe it when we leave. So that's the call, is to be obedient followers of Jesus. And I just got to stress again this idea that this is what salvation leads us to. Um, salvation is the doorway to discipleship. To be saved by Jesus is to be called to Jesus. And here's what Jesus said. He said that, It tells us this in Mark 9, that Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is the call. Jesus can't be at the center of your life if you are. He can't be at the center of my life if I am. He can't be at the center of our family if our ideas are. He will not be at the center of a community here if he's not in our own lives. So here's the call. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and Follow me. This is following Jesus. This is Christianity. The other day I was um in the room with Evie and she wanted to do some something, some activity. It's it's kind of it's different every hour to the next, what she what she's into. But um and there was a bunch of toys everywhere. Oh, she wanted to watch a show, that's what it was. She wanted to watch a show with dad. And there was there was Legos everywhere. And I said, Let's, so Dad, can we go watch a show? I'd love to, Evie. Right? First, can we clean up these Legos? And she goes, she's so cute. She goes, no, thank you, Daddy. (laughs) No, thanks. (laughs) What? Like, making it polite all of a sudden means you're not rebelling against me right now? Like, oh, no, thanks. (laughs) And I thought of that, like, that's a lot of how we approach Jesus. No, thanks. No thanks. Thanks for the offer. Thanks for saving me. And scripture has some really hard words about that. Now, now I think this word discipleship. I think maybe the hardest part about it is um, it's such a Christian hodgepodge word. Is that the right word? Hodgepodge or modgepodge? You get the idea, right? Okay. It's a word that is like sometimes it's used so much for so many things that we're not really sure what it means. You know, like, we, you know, we played some flag football and someone said a prayer beforehand, discipleship, okay? Or like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, what does this actually mean? Now, I think a, um, for, for Jesus using this word before flag football ministry, maybe they had it back then, I don't know. Um, I'm going to stop. I was going to tell a joke. Okay. Um, back then, Jesus, I think here's a more modern word that might help us understand a little bit more of what, what we're called into with this, okay? Uh, discipleship, I think, in an updated sense, is this word apprenticeship, this is maybe a more accurate or a more modern understanding of that. I'm not sure if you've ever apprenticed someone before, but like discipleship, apprenticeship involves following someone, following someone, okay? And three specific things, apprenticeship, discipleship to Jesus, involves three things. It involves being with someone, proximity and presence. It involves learning from someone. You're with them, you watch them, you learn from them. Think about the disciples, right? And The goal is that through being with them, learning their ways, learning from them, you become like them. And this is certainly what discipleship to Jesus looks like. Um, For us to be a church that centers our lives around following Jesus, it means that we as disciples of Jesus first were with him. We've got to be with Jesus. It's withness, it's presence. We're, We're saved into a relationship with Jesus that he has secured Okay, your relationship with Jesus is not dependent on your performance or, your, or, or how much you've been relating to him this week. Your relationship with Jesus is a covenant that's been established through the work of the gospel. And so like my kids, regardless of how much they engage in relationship with me, they always have access to me. I'm always going to be their dad. I, I can't you know, kick them out, sometimes we want to, but I can't kick them out the front door when they fail to perform you are not an illegitimate child of God. You're a, you're a son and daughter of God. And through the gospel, you really can know him. And in some of us, the reason why we're not knowing him is because we're in sin. And we think, man, let me stop sinning so that I can know him. And that's backwards. You will have no power over sin if you're not in relationship with Jesus. Switch that around. I'm going to know him. And through knowing him, there's power um, in being free. Now, this was such a testimony of the disciples. I love in Acts it says this that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. There's a reason why they perceived that, right? Um, But they marveled. And notice what they realized they realized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that awesome? In Mark 4, when Jesus calls his disciples, it says that he appointed the twelve that they might be with him. This with, withness is so important to Jesus. Quality time. It's like one of his love languages, right? Like wanting to be with us. This was the testament. What a testimony. Imagine that. Think about this. Is there any time in your week this week that people could look at your life and they could tell that you had been with Jesus? Wow, that person's, it's like that person's, they're not, they, they perceive to be somewhat uneducated. They perceive to not have all the answers, but there's something, it's like you could tell that they were with Jesus. It's amazing. It's what we're called to. Uh, It's also learning from Jesus. So you're with someone to learn from them, to learn from them, okay? Uh, This is what Jesus calls us into in Matthew 11. Come to me, there's the invitation, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I've been personally meditating on this all week. Uh, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke in that time was a, was a set of teachings, a, a way of life. Take my yoke, just like you'd have it on an oxen. Y- be yoked up to me. Follow my course. Learn from me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, forsaking my way to follow Jesus is harder, but following Jesus' way is always better. It's always better. It's easier. Anybody wants some easy in their life? Anybody want some light? How many of you guys got some heavy things you carry? Things that weigh you down, that discourage you, that exhaust you. Listen, could it be that the issue that you're facing is not your circumstances, but it's you? And how you're walking through your circumstances? That's the question I've had to ask myself all week. Oh, Jesus, am I going your way? Now, being a disciple means, Jesus, I'm coming to learn your way. Your way is better than my way. I want to study your way for my finances, your way for for the plan you have for my life, your way for my marriage, your way for how to conduct my business, your way for how to conduct this relationship, your way. You know what we're doing right now? We're seeking to go, Jesus, your way for the church, right? So it's about learning his way. And then ultimately the goal is to become like Jesus, to become like Jesus. This is the call of Ephesians 1. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's a call to imitation. Being a disciple means, and and notice what what it centers in on, I am someone who has been so unbelievably loved by God. And as I position myself under the faucet, under the spigot of that incredible love that is poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit, I seek to imitate the same love that was showed to me outwardly. I want to imitate it. This is becoming, I want to become like Jesus. And notice what I'm saying here. I believe this, that the primary characteristic of someone who becomes like Jesus is going to be love. Some of us have big head, tiny heart syndrome. We know it all. We've learned it all from Jesus. But, and I love how Russ taught on this last week, any work of theology that just puffs you up, but doesn't lead to faith, hope, and the greatest of these, which is love, it's not accomplishing the purpose that God has for it. So so we want to be people that love, just like we have been loved. And I would say, specifically in three directions, um, my goal is that as a community, We are characterized in our discipleship to Jesus by a three-way love in response to the one-way love of Jesus. It's a love for God. Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. It's a love for each other. By each other, it's the people of God. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples. By the love you have for each other. If, if Je- come on. Jesus knows that that's going to be a testimony because of how hard that is. Because when you look around, you see people who are different than you, who think differently than you. God forbid they vote differently than you, okay? They post different Facebook articles than you, okay? You're going to be around people Person, The church, and I'm going to teach more on this next week when we talk about community, but the, the church exposes you to people that you, do, that you are led to do life with that you never would without Jesus, and as he pours out his love in our hearts and we begin to love each other through those differences, it becomes a testimony to those around us. People go, what is that about you guys? Is there listen? Is there, has there ever been a time in our history where, where, listen, by just being a united people in our differences can be such a testimony? I mean, come on. In a, in, a, in a time of division, it's just awesome, that call. So it's loving each other and it's loving the world around us. The, the, the scriptures say things like loving your neighbor. until you actually get like an actual neighbor that's, you know, that's just a nice bumper sticker. You ever actually been like, oh my gosh, I have to love that neighbor. That neighbor that won't, you know, trim his palm fronds that are growing over my fence. Or put up these new vines that now are attracting South Florida's entire population of iguanas. I didn't just disclose anything personal for my life at all, you know loving the world around us. And I I want you to think, go into all the world, right, and make disciples. How? By loving them in the name of Jesus, proclaiming God's love to them. Think about your workplace. Think about your neighborhood. Think about your your places of recreation. This is transformation. Um, Being with Jesus, learning from Jesus, becoming like Jesus together. And this is our mission as a church. Amen? Amen? That we as a church would center our lives around following Jesus together. Let me close with this. You have a destination. That's a vision. And that vision is to be a Christ-centered community that makes the eternal impact on the world around us. You have transportation. That's how we get there. We believe God is calling us to be transported by faith and towards this vision by centering our lives around following Jesus together. But how many of us also know that though you have a destination in transportation, transportation, if you've ever been on a road trip before, you know something that is essential to getting to where you need to go is navigation. It's not enough to just know where you want to go and have the means to get there. You need a good Google Maps, or I would recommend Waze, a great app, okay? Um, You need navigation. You need a roadmap, and that's something I think that we've really spent the most time thinking about as a church. Like, we... Come on, like all day long, we could sit around and say, This is our vision, this is our mission. But it's like, But what are we doing? You know what I mean? Like, what are we doing tomorrow? You know, um, what are we doing next? Sunday? Why are we doing Sunday? And so, uh, what I'm really excited to share, what I believe is some really cool and, and um, God inspired direction uh, of navigation for all of these things. And we're, we're entitling it, and you see it there in your book, we're calling it Our Discipleship Pathway of Values and practices, a discipleship pathway of values and practices. Uh, we we want to simplify this thing down to say this, that following Jesus, being a disciple, um, is, is really simply about consistency and discipline. Discipline. By the way, that's, that's um, where you get the word disciple from. Discipline. Uh, disciplines, practices, practices. Um, and so the first thing we have with that is, as, you, as I just said, is we have values and practices. This in, in a couple weeks, two weeks, I'm going to teach on spiritual formation through practice, through valuing the things of God, through practicing things like prayer and studying the word and, and centering on the gospel, stuff like that. But I want to make sure I point out the uh, delineation here. It's values and practices. I want to read a quote from, from a, a pastor named Tyler Stanton. He said it this way, too often values are just a list of ideas we like. They have no rootedness in our everyday lives and end up being nice aspirations we hope to live up to someday. Our actual values, the things we really value, are revealed by what we do. How do you know what you value? Not what's on your wall. (laughs) This is what we value. You know how someone can value, understand what Solus Church values? Not by what we say we value, but how do we live? How do we exist? What are our disciplines? What are our practices that we prioritize our lives around? It's interesting, he says this, that when it comes to our values, it's important that as the church, as the people of God, we don't just agree on important ideas, but that we as the church embody practices. So you you see there 10 values. That when you go through these things, what what we want to communicate is that these aren't just things that we say like, oh, the gospel is really awesome. You know, we, we, we really value scripture, we really value prayer, we really value community and generosity and evangelism, discipleship, the kingdom of God. We're saying we so value the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is so insanely valuable that we are going to regularly proclaim it to ourselves. It's important enough to say a few times a day, right? It's important enough, listen, to remember, so what we do is we so value the gospel, so what we will do is we will come to a meal called communion. And we'll take bread, here's a practice, and we'll take a cup, and we will reflect on the gospel together. We so value scripture that we are going to devote ourselves to the study and the application of it. And and so on, and so on, and so on. I'd encourage you to read through those. I'm going to teach through those in a couple weeks. Now, those are our practices. This is what makes up the rhythms of our community As a church, following Jesus together, centering our lives around following him together. It's these things, um, and it's through what we're calling our discipleship pathway. So the values and practices answer the what of our discipleship pathway, what we do, but our discipleship pathway answers the question of where, okay? It's sort of our strategy of discipleship, and uh, I'm going to introduce two new things to you. A lot of you guys are, uh, you might be familiar with our Sunday gatherings. You should really check them out. They're great. Um. It was a joke. Also, you're supposed to laugh there. Duh. Okay. Um, after our Sunday gatherings, you have our solace communities. We're going to talk about those next week. We are going to intro- We have six uh, communities. Th- uh, three of them are returning. Three of them are new. Uh, three of them are going to be family friendly. Three of them are going to have uh, one of them, One of those, the fourth one's going to be somewhat open. The other two are going to have some more target demographics. We have a young married couples one. We're going to have a, a young adults one. But those are our solace communities. These are Like it says, communities, small communities of anywhere from 20 to 30 people that seek to build relationship with one another as a church. This is where we keep the church about the church. There are just some, listen, there are some things that you can get on Sundays that you can't get in a souls community. Like I remember being at Russ's house and there's 50 kids running around. Like you just can't get this there. But let me say that there are some things in your discipleship to Jesus, essential things in your discipleship to Jesus that you cannot get here you can't get here. You have to get it here. It will only come through community. Uh, now, we're introducing a third aspect of our discipleship pathway that we're calling core groups. Now, the first two things here are initiated and organized by Solus Church, Inc., okay? The Solus Church organization. We are providing the leader, the place, the plan, all of that jazz. All you got to do is be present and show up, okay? Which I know sometimes it's hard, but it's, it's important, now, core groups is a third aspect of our discipleship pathway that we're introducing that is going to be completely initiated by our church body. It's something that you've got to take the reins on. And these core groups are, are smaller groups of three to five people of the same gender that we're encouraging, we're praying the Holy Spirit forms them organically. It might take four months, that's okay. But that, these, that you would hopefully find a core group of, of three to five people that you can really walk intimately and closely with in your relationship to Jesus. Okay? there's some things that you can get here that you cannot get anywhere else. You can't get it here, you can't get it here. There's something about having that core group of people that, listen, you can open up your life to them in complete vulnerability and honesty. And the goal is that these meet as regularly as possible, whatever that looks like. I know it might be like a mom's group that goes to the park. I mean, whatever it, it looks like, we really believe the Holy Spirit's gonna fill in the details for that. And then lastly, I wanna point out everyday life. Um, Uh, I feel like one of the biggest things that we are up against as a church is the false delineation that's made between our church lives and our personal lives. Like, I got my church life, I got my community, my gathering, and then there's my everyday life, right? Sunday, Monday, right? (laughs) This false delineation that's cultural and not biblical, Biblically, your Christian life's not compartmentalized, right? We're following Jesus in all of life. And all, so, so your everyday life matters in your discipleship to Jesus. And I also need to say that there's this also this other false delineation that I see the enemy do, that when he creates that separation, what it says is, these things are sacred. This, though, it's, you know, it's just your everyday life. And look, can I tell you something? A life with Jesus is not an everyday life. It's not just an everyday life. It's an incredible life. It's abundant life. It's a life that matters. So so it's not like there's the sacred, one, two, three, and then the secular, number four. got to go to my job, my secular job. Do you see your workplace as a place where you are a disciple of Jesus? That's how we have to think. This is huge in our relationship as disciples to Jesus. And I just need to say, at the end of the day, it's all for the glory of Jesus. It's all, this is, listen, it's all for the glory of Jesus. Why all this stuff for the glory of Jesus? For him? Why, why should I give up my life to follow Jesus? For his glory. Because there's no greater glory than you could give your life to. The glory of Jesus. So uh, no matter what we say here, no matter what has changed, I want to say that our passion statement, uh, it's, it's, it's going to remain, and it's this, it's Jesus at the center. It's still Jesus at the center. It's only always has to be Jesus at the center for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com.